It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And I'm Shannon Bond. Shannon, rather than going on one of my flighty, discursive, <laughs> self-absorbed uh, flights of fancy. I want to talk about Dan Lyons. He's got a new book out. First of all, why don't you tell us who he is and what it's about, and then we'll get into the topic. Yeah. So I um, actually reviewed this book for the FT this week um, and really enjoyed it. Dan Lyons was- uh, What's it called? It's called Disrupted, My Misadventure in the Startup Bubble. Um, Dan Lyons was uh, the fairly long time technology editor at Newsweek. He wrote for Fortune before that, sort of old school print journalist, right, magazine journalist who had been covering the tech industry, um, but for traditional media for a long time. Those familiar with the travails of U.S. magazines may know they're not doing so well. And so Dan got laid off from Newsweek in 2012 and decided to make a career change and went to join, eventually did a couple of things and then eventually joined this uh, marketing software startup in Boston called HubSpot. In his 50s. When he was, yeah, he was 52. He signed on as a marketing fellow, which he in the book sort of says he doesn't really know what the job was supposed to be. It never really seemed clear that anybody knew what the job was supposed to be. Um, but this was a start startup that had a lot of VC backing, had a lot of money, um, was looking to go public. And, you know, you, you definitely have a sense they were sort of looking to bring on someone with a bit of a different background. You know, they, they knew what they were getting in a way, right? They're bringing on someone with a bit of gravitas, but didn't seem to quite know what to do with him. Uh, and so the book is sort of his, um, the culture clash that he experienced, um, you know, it, it, a bit of an indictment of Silicon Valley and sort of the way the tech bubble is playing out. But a lot about sort of thinking about the nature of work and how the nature of work is changing, which I know is a topic uh, near and dear to your heart. To both of our hearts, I think. <laughs> yeah. uh, to give one example of the kind of nonsense that he encountered while he was at HubSpot, uh, the company used to refer to people getting fired as, quote unquote, graduating from the company, right? So I, I don't want to focus too much on like the culture clash aspect of it or the BS speak. I want to focus on one particular piece that Dan Lyons wrote about his experience there. I don't know if it's an excerpt from the book or if it was just kind of a spinoff piece, but it was about the challenges he faced in changing careers. Particularly changing careers at that point and you know, well, well past the midpoint of your career. Right. Well past the point where you're thought to be kind of nimble, cheap, because that matters to a mm -hmm. lot of company, uh, and quick to learn mm -hmm. at a time in your career when you're thought to be like the wise, you know, eminence glee or whatever, right, right. right? 52 years old. And this piece I thought was really quite touching because it kind of looked at the difference between our ideal for how to switch careers uh, in midlife and the reality of it. It's actually really hard. Right, right. I mean, so some of the things, you know, he talks about is this, this idea that, you know, it's just if you have that can-do attitude and you can just go out and be flexible, like all these things we hear about, you know, that employers value that you're just going to be able to succeed. But actually, 
that's that's hard. That's a lot harder than people sort of give credit for, especially when you add in all of the other factors of like a complete, you know, going from in his case, going from journalism to essentially marketing, you know, sell and selling something, a sales operation. You know, a lot of those, you may be flexible and be willing to reinvent yourself, but if you don't kind of have the basic skills or an understanding of like what the product is. You know, that's not going to do you any favors. Yeah, we've learned in uh, an earlier podcast that it takes a long time of practice and experience to gain a new expertise. So here you are going from an industry where you're respected, where you've got a lot of experience, where people know who you are, and you're good at it, mm-hmm. right? That's why you are where you are. When you switch careers, okay, you have to start practicing again. You're sort of starting out at the bottom. You're starting out at the bottom with a lot of people who are in their 20s, whereas Mm -hmm. you're already in midlife. And this, uh, as he describes, is a really humbling experience. It's messy. It brings a lot of self-doubt. It can take time. because Just because you're old and good at another job doesn't mean that the people in your new profession are going to necessarily accept you right away. It's really tough. But there's also an economic component to it. So if you look at demographic trends, people are getting older. There is always constant talk about extending the retirement age, um, lifting the retirement age because uh, you you might want to stabilize deficits or whatever. The point is that people are expected to work a little bit longer now. And part of that is for good reasons, because a lot of these are white collar jobs. They're a little bit easier than the jobs of the past physically. Uh, But at the same time, it means that a lot of people might have to switch careers, especially as the economy digitizes, especially as it moves more into services and away from making things. Uh, And for a lot of people, even though this is a choice that they might be looking forward to because it sounds great, they might actually find that transition to be really quite difficult and taxing. Mm -hmm. But for now, let's look at what's on today's agenda. First up on the show, I talked to Brad DeLong. He's an economist and an economic historian from Berkeley. I asked him to choose three events from economic history that are underappreciated, both for the way they changed how we think about economics and also for their actual impact on economies themselves. Then after that, I speak to Shutujit Das. He's the author of The New Age of Stagnation. It goes by A Banquet of Consequences in Europe who looks at the world as it is and different stagnationist trends, combines them all, and writes a very dark portrait of where the economy is headed if something doesn't change. Stick around. Lots of great stuff today. First up on the show is Brad DeLong, an economist and economic historian at the University of California, Berkeley. He's also the author of a new book, a co-author of the new book, Concrete Economics, the Hamilton Approach to Economic Growth and Policy. We're going to be discussing this book in an upcoming episode of Alpha Chatter Box, our long-form sister podcast. But for this Alpha Chat segment, I've asked Brad to choose three underappreciated events in economic history and to give us the lessons we can learn from those events. I should say to our listeners, I don't know what Brad's chosen, so I'll be learning along with you as we go along. Brad, thanks for coming on Alpha Chat. All right. Thank you very much. So what is first on the agenda? What is the first lesson and the first underappreciated event in economic history uh, that you want to share with us? Um, The first is the bursting of the 1825 canal bubble in Britain, um, centered on London. It's the first time we have a business cycle that is truly triggered not 
by the commercial embarrassment of some dominant banking house and not by some government default like King Charles II's stop of the exchequer or the financial manipulations of Felipe II of Spain, whom his bankers called the borrowers from hell. Instead, it's the first time that we have a wave of enthusiasm in high-tech investment, leading to lots of overinvestment due to over-optimism and a failure of one canal builder to realize how much their market would be impacted by a second. The resulting crash... And then the spillover of the crash to manufacturing as a whole. The first year in which Britain mechanized cotton spinning production falls relative to the past year is 1826, and mechanized production then falls by 30% relative to 1825. It also had powerful consequences for both economic theory um, and for economic policy practice. Um, Jean-Baptiste Say the originator of Say's Law, the person who had first said that a general glut, um, that a demand-driven business cycle that led to mass unemployment was not something we had to worry about because nobody made something intending to sell it without also intending to buy it. And so while you could have excess supply in some industries, it would be matched by excess demand in others. And so people would shift from one industry to the other quickly and the market would do its job. 1825 convinced him that he had been wrong. Um, it also was the first time that banks engaged in lender of last resort activities. Um, that is, the banking house of Thornton and Company was one that had made the most canal loans and was the most likely to be highly embarrassed. And um, E.M. Forster's great-great-aunt's nephew, um, the very long young Henry Thornton, aged 25 or so, appears to have been only the only partner in London in December when the crisis hit who was actually willing to do anything. So he went to the Bank of England and he lied and he said, we are solvent but illiquid. Um, and the Bank of England agreed to support him. And so that weekend on Sunday morning uh, before dawn, the governor and deputy governor of the Bank of England counted out the banknotes to preserve secrecy and then wheeled them through the pre-dawn streets of London in the December gloom so that when the bank opened the following day, they could show huge piles of banknotes piled up behind the tellers to indicate that they were well capitalized. Um, so... It tells us a number of things. It tells some major movement in economic theory as the patron saint of austerity, Jean-Baptiste Say, abandons the position he'd been pushing since 1803. It shows the origins of lender of last resort activities on a large scale in response to a financial crisis produced by a bursting of a high-tech investment bubble. And it also shows the first case in which the bankers managed to successfully manipulate the central bank into coming out of the crisis whole and, in fact, highly profitable, using government support, even though they were the ones whose rash, risky, and inappropriate lending had caused it. That is a fantastic example. Uh, something I, I often lament is that when a lot of us talk about bubbles, we often stay with modern examples and we get into comparisons between the housing bubble and, say, the dot-com bubble, and then you talk about uh, the remnants of those bubbles and sort of the damage left behind by them. A lot of times we kind of ignore the fact that bubbles are as old as money and credit. 
you know, and there's great lessons to be learned. Yes, you know, as soon as you have large-scale credit where the borrower no longer knows the lender, where the fact that borrowings have been good for so long that you think that you really do not need to check that the borrower is in fact good for it because, you know, the value of being able to borrow in the future is so high that who would risk that? Um, it's when everyone stops checking the quality of the debts they own um, and thus the debts they own begin to circulate as money, um, as stuff that is widely perceived to be safe. Um, well, then, then you're looking for a crisis because at some point it will become very clear that things you thought were safe really weren't safe. That after all, the debts of Felipe II of um, Spain, master of the New World, owner of all the gold of the Aztecs and Incas, proprietor of the Silver Mountain that was Potosi in Peru, um, how could he possibly manage to get himself embarrassed? Well, he gave away enough land grants, enough pensions to the nobles of Spain, and he spent enough money on the armies of the Counter-Reformation in their war against the terrorist insurgency of Dutch religious fanatics in the 16th century, Protestant religious fanatics then, but religious fanatics, that he managed to do it. Okay. it's uh, wonderfully insightful. Um, what is your second example? Uh, my second example is something that I just learned about this week. One of our Berkeley graduate students, Jillian Brunette, who's writing her dissertation about World War II. Um, now, World War II has always been very interesting um, in that it sees the rapid movement of an economy in the United States from a deflation, depression economics economy to an inflation economics economy. You know, as first the Franklin Roosevelt gets worried about Nazi Germany and starts trying to help assemble alliances against it, he fails miserably. Then as France and Britain actually draw a line in the sand and say, we will declare war on you if you attack Poland. Um, and Hitler responds, well, what can you do? Poland is the, on the other side of us from you. This is an empty threat, attacks Poland, and lo and behold, he finds out that France and Britain actually meant it, which was unusual, um, that until 1944, and it was clear the Allies had won, um, France and Britain were the only countries that ever declared war on Hitler rather than waiting until he attacked, um, and France was the only country that shared a land border with Nazi Germany that ever voluntarily declared war on it. Everyone else hid as long as they could. And then after 19, September 1939, Franklin Roosevelt wants to send every single piece of military hardware he can to Britain and build lots more. Um, but then it's not until the end of 1941 and the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor that the U.S. changes gears completely and becomes 80% devoted to fighting Hitler and we're going to spend money and redirect factories no matter what. And the question is, how did this transformation from um, slack economy to inflation economy happen? And what happened to our standard macroeconomic relationships when it did happen? Um, and it turns out, this is the thing I learned this week, um, that only a little bit of central planning allows you to do an enormous amount to redirect economic activity without having your price level twip, triple, quadruple explode, even if you want to do it immediately. 
um, that all the federal government had to do was issue an executive order shutting down those few assembly lines producing automobiles and trucks and saying Vimas must be redirected to tanks and similar military vehicles. And not only did a huge amount of industrial production switch over immediately to producing things for the Pentagon to be, but also um, the funding for that immediately emerged without inflation because everyone who would have bought a car in 1942, 43, or 44 immediately began reserving the money they would have spent on the car in that year as savings and used it to buy government bonds. And so you managed to switch a very large amount of production without a lot of inflation very quickly by just using a teeny bit um, of central planning, possible applications to what we may decide to do with respect to global warming. If something bad happens on the warming front and it becomes the moral equivalent of war for us rather than something to leave for next generations. And your final uh, example of an underappreciated event from economic history. Well, for this, let me talk up Steve Cohen and my book, right, Concrete Economics, um, which is subtitled The Hamilton Approach to Economic Growth and Policy. First, because Alexander Hamilton is perhaps the one person in the book who really matters. And second, because we are trying to sail as close as possible to the Hamilton boom in order to sell books without ourselves becoming an intellectual property misappropriation test case. But our big overall thesis is that American economic policy has been remarkably good for the past two centuries until something happens around 1980 after which somehow the United States as a whole begins investing in the wrong industries. That whatever you think of them, you know, healthcare administration bureaucrats, um, hedge fund operators, um, financiers making lots of money by taking the price pressure of small investors and using it to profit, uh, people taking advantage of quirks in the capital structure and the fact that worker pension funds have cash flow rights but few control rights to expropriate pensions and put their remains to the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. A large focus on increasing income inequality because our overclass is extremely valuable but are sufficiently lazy that they won't do their jobs of managing enterprises and engaging in entrepreneurship properly unless they're promised fortunes of 500 million rather than 50 million if they succeed. These are really not the industries of the future um, in any good sense, yet these are the industries that America has been overwhelmingly investing in since 1980 as opposed to before 1980. When we invested in aerospace, when we invested in computer hardware, when we invested in um, superhighways and suburbs, when we invested before that in manufacturing and in high-tech manufacturing for the day in the form of industries based on electric power and the internal combustion engine. Even before that, when America, which didn't have a comparative advantage in manufacturing, did indeed build up a very strong comparative advantage in the resource-based manufacturing industries where it had the resources, so much so that even back before the Civil War, the British Parliament is sending over people to investigate just how is it that New England has managed to leapfrog us in so many parts of machine tool technology and even in textile technology? How did they do this? And I think the answer is precisely that Americans weren't terribly ideological before 1980 
where the economic policy rubber hit the road. That people back then overwhelmingly believed that the world was a very complicated and mixed place, where circumstances altered, right, where circumstances mattered. And that what you needed to do was to look around, to look down, to look up, to say what's most likely to work now, as opposed to having some very large, overarching ideological vision of the world, which explains everything on some very small set of simple, basic principles. That that reassures you and allows you to live your life kind of confident and unafraid and secure, but it's also probably wrong. And back around 1790, the ideologists were the Jeffersonians. Um, the Jeffersonians were those who believed that small yeoman farmers, although Monticello is hardly a yeoman farmer enterprise, that small yeoman farmers were the only guarantee of middle class prosperity and of um, political liberty as well. That if you have manufacturing, if you have even too much commerce, if you have banks, if you have a government that is investing in what were then the high technologies of the day, that those are very dangerous things, banks especially. If you ask Jefferson, he would say, look at London. Um, London has become a corrupt resource extraction machine, and the British in 1790 are proceeding down the road that led to the collapse of the Roman Republic and the rise of Julius Caesar. They're becoming corrupt, and our only chance is to cut ourselves off from them and make sure that our political system is as little like England's as we possibly can. Um, Hamilton said, hey, wait a minute. Um, let's see what actually works. Let's see what industries are producing high wages. Um, let's see what are the opportunities for invention, invention and advancement. So much so that when Jefferson's followers and successors got into office and found themselves actually having to deal with the realities of power, well, they continued Hamilton's policies. James Madison argued very eloquently that the first bank of the United States was unconstitutional, supporting Jefferson in their cabinet battles, um, presented in rap form in the musical. But when he was president, James Madison enthusiastically signed and then had his attorney general aggressively defend the rights and powers of the second bank of the United States to operate completely free from state regulation of any sort. Yeah, and uh, I think one of the, the themes of the book is how uh, the debates of those early years about uh, the country's foundational economics uh, have certainly reappeared again in more recent times. Brad, uh, thanks for being on Alpha Chat. And again, to our listeners, we are going to be discussing Concrete Economics, the Hamilton Approach to Economic Growth and Policy, written by Brad DeLong and his co-author Stephen Cohen on an upcoming edition of Alpha Chatterbox, our long-form sister podcast. But before we let you go, Brad, uh, can you give us a long-form recommendation? Oh, the two I'm recommending right now are Martin Wolf's The Shifts and the Shocks and Barry Eichengreen's Hall of Mirrors, The Gold Standard and the Great Depression. I think these are two books, and if you read them, you know what you really need to know and more than 99.9% .9 of the world about the current pickle we're in how we might get out of it, and why you should be relatively depressed, unless you're already a relatively rich person willing to bear substantial amounts of risk going forward in the world economy.
And joining me now all the way from Sydney, Australia is Shutujit Das. He just goes by Das. He's a former investment banker and consultant turned author. His previous books are Extreme Money and Traders, Guns and Money. His new book is called The Age of Stagnation in the U.S. It goes by Banquet of Consequences in the U.K. He also writes periodically for the Financial Times. Das, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. So I have to say that even uh, among all the stagnationist commentary, yours, I think, stands out for being uh, particularly bleak. You incorporate other elements of stagnationist thinking into your book, the sort of secular chronic demand shortfall stagnationist thinking, but also the supply side uh, technological uh, stagnationist. And then you add a few uh, points of emphasis of your own. And your point is not necessarily that the world is going to continue on just kind of plodding along, but actually that if something dramatic doesn't change, that we might be headed towards a greater economic calamity even than the global financial crisis of 2008. Uh, why don't you just start by taking us through the foundations uh, of your argument, um, and then we'll get into some of the details. I think you have to go back and look at a basic economic model that we have. And the basic economic model has changed quite a bit in the last 30 or 40 years. And during that period, we sort of re-geared the world. And this goes back to the 1970s when we had, obviously, the oil shocks and a period of stagflation. And at that point in time, the economy was re-geared. And it was done very subtly. And to be honest, I don't think anybody planned this the way it's worked out. But we started to use financialization and debt as almost like a steroid to restart the global economy. And part of that was the reliance on market mechanisms and effectively opening up the economy. And part of that was opening up the financial services sector. Now, at that point in time, we started to grow debt. And to be very fair, until that point in time, debt had probably been overly rationed for a whole bunch of reasons. So that started to get the economy going. But there are some parallel things that are going on. And these things have been going on for a lot longer. Things like essentially using scarce resources, not pricing them properly, using them in an accelerated manner, environmental damage, which really goes back to the start of the human race, and also the Industrial Revolution, and the demographic as the world started to change from the late 1980s onwards. So all of these things were going along, but underlying them is a very interesting economic model, which is we try to bring forward consumption and investment, so to enjoy the fruits of whatever is around us today, but we tend to defer the risk we also tend to defer the costs often into the future. And this has now been highlighted post-2008 in a very interesting way. And the phrase extend and pretend, kicking the can down the road, has come to be associated particularly with the monetary policies that central banks have put in place post-2008-2009. But I would argue that those policies are very fundamental to the basic economic model, that particularly the developed world, but also now the developing world like China are putting in place. So essentially what I'm saying is that model has its own inbuilt mechanism of self-destruction. And that's what we're now starting to see play out. So to some extent, the problems that I suppose the pure economists have focused on which is the secular stagnation thesis, the debt thesis, the innovation thesis, is part of a bigger picture. And I think unless we resolve that issue in some shape or form, then clearly we're going to have serious problems up ahead. 
So can you elaborate a little bit more, though, on why those costs can't be borne um, through just sluggish growth for a period of time, even if it lasts years or decades, rather than ending in something that you know completely collapses uh, global living standards? Why can't it be that we just have to kind of, I think, by, by, your, by your framework, work off these excesses um, rather than, uh, and let the global economy rebalance however it has to, uh, rather than it ending in something like the global financial crisis of 2008, which was triggered by some very specific causes. In other words, uh, it wasn't just the rise of debt, although that certainly made the aftermath much harder, but rather the way that that debt was traded. And specifically, it was a lot of it was used as very safe collateral when clearly it turned out not to be. Uh, I guess I'm wondering why it is that the economy, um, you know, wrenching uh, as things are right now, can't be sluggish for a long period of time rather than ending up in this kind of epic catastrophe that you write about in the book. Okay. I think let's go back to a really fundamental point of what things like debt do. And let's take debt as an example of that. What debt does, and there's nothing wrong with using debt, is it brings forward consumption. And the aim here is that you essentially use that, whatever it is the cash is used for, and that throws off two elements. One is the cash flow or the earnings, which enables the debt to be firstly serviced and secondly, to be eventually paid back. And the second argument, which is related to the first, is the point that you were making, the collateral value. Whatever you've bought with it is worth what it is. The problem with that argument and where it breaks down is this. Let's actually have a look at that And there's two elements to that. One is the world's debt to GDP, roughly, is about 300%. Now, let's assume just loosely that the cost of that debt is 2%. So that's roughly 6% cost in nominal terms. And that's roughly what your GDP has to grow by every year to actually keep your debt reasonably stable. Now, that's not a neat argument, but you can sort of get to that somehow. But the second part of that, which I think is even more interesting, is let's now look at where the growth was coming from. And the growth was coming by increasing debt in part. And if you looked at the period, particularly post probably about 2001, more than 50% of your actual growth was coming from increasing debt. And let's now take that argument into a little subtler sort of byway, which is you go back to history and you look at the USA post-war in the 1950s, you needed $1 to $2 of debt to create $1 of GDP. Now, then on the other side, you get to 2007, you need about anywhere between 3 and $5, depending on how you do the calculation, to create $1 of GDP. So what is happening is your growth is dependent on basically being able to increase your debt levels and borrowing. In other words, you keep bringing forward things all the time. And essentially, you reach a point when the system needs more and more debt to grow. But the problem is you can't actually service the debt it is. And you get into the type of Minsky argument, which is that the differences between essentially hedge financing, basically, and eventually Ponzi financing, because you actually can't service the debt and the assets themselves can't hold back. Now, the question is, have we reached that moment or not? And I actually, and the book actually makes this quite clear, is while you may think it's bleak, 
that that position is gradually being reached and it's actually being accelerated because the whole idea was in 2008, we got a wake-up call and we were going to deleverage, except we didn't deleverage at all because debt has grown from 2007 mm-hmm. to 2014 by 57 trillion or 17 percentage point of global GDP. So what I'm saying is we haven't really addressed it, so we keep growing it. And at a certain point in time, the problem becomes irreversible. I'll give you an analogy in diseases. If you catch a disease early enough and treat it, you might go through a long recovery process. But basically, you can recover and go back to something like your condition prior to the disease. But if you let the disease linger and basically it gradually overwhelms your biological system, you know, there is no way you can treat it at that point in time. And I'm not saying that we've reached that point, but the point the book is making is that if we don't change certain fundamental things, then that risk becomes higher. And I actually see three scenarios now playing out. One is what I call the Lazarus economy, which is that I'm wrong and all of these things miraculously correct themselves for whatever reason. And, you know, there's always a chance that might happen. For instance, tomorrow we might wake up and somebody says, well, I've solved the problem of cold fusion. And basically, we can get unlimited energy. And those things can happen. But they're obviously not really on the horizon and they're hard to predict. I mean, for all we know, extraterrestrial life might arrive from a distant galaxy and solve all our trade problems in some shape or form. But then I think the more likely case is a period of stagnation where effectively we don't get recovery. We get trapped in this low growth world. We also get trapped with no inflation for a whole bunch of reasons, and the debt problem keeps growing and growing, and the central banks and the policymakers use more and more repressive measures to try to control this entire process, rather like Japan has done for the last 20, 25 years. And we keep going down that path. And I think that's a very high probability for the foreseeable future. But the last one is the one that we fear, which is that everything suddenly comes apart, the wheels fall off the cart. And the problem is, because we actually wasted the time since 2009, because I think the policies that were put in place had a place. And the the basic thing about them, which is really important to understand, is all they did was buy you time. And you had to make certain changes. And we refused to make the changes because politically it was easier to believe that these policies were going to work rather than actually address them. So the risk is always there that the wheels come off. And if the wheels come off, this time it's going to be definitely worse, going back to your opening comments since 2008. One, the problem's bigger, and there are different dimensions to the problem now. The second thing is it's not only a problem for developed worlds, which it was largely in 2008, because the emerging markets are now a source of problems. Policy uh, ammunition is largely actually spent, and we've got huge difficulties in what we can do, despite the protestations of central bankers who keep saying there's more they can do, but there's limitations to that. And finally, I think the whole system works on trust. And I think everybody, despite misgivings, believed in central bankers and policymakers in 2009 to varying degrees, partly because it was convenient and helpful to do so. But this time around, it's going to be more difficult. And the social stresses that this is going to throw off are really significant. And the last element is the geopolitical situation in 2016 is much worse than it was in 2008, which may complicates how we're going to deal with it. Okay. Final question. Let's talk about policy solutions. You've made the case, obviously, that if fiscal policy is deployed, that it adds to the rise in debt. 
And you've also criticized uh, central bank policies as effectively impotent at this point. In the book, you say that we should accept more pain now to avoid agony later, the idea that we should accept lower living standards now so that there isn't a much bigger shakeout later. You conduct a thought experiment about what it would mean to live a little bit more frugally. I I couldn't quite tell, but I don't think you were actively advocating the policies that were part of that thought experiment you were making. You were offering an example. So can you tell us now, uh, what do you think would be some effective policies in your opinion, to uh, to avoid uh, this calamity that you're describing? I think the fundamental thing is you've got to start with one of the core problems. And the first core problem is debt. And I think this is going to be written off, whether we write it off now or write it off as the Europeans are doing with Greece, which is by debt by a thousand cuts. Mm-hmm. I think it's better to accept that savers are going to lose this money. And basically what we're going to have to do is write it down to a reasonable level. So I think that has to be addressed first. The second, I think, is the huge problem of basically the global imbalances. You can't have Germany and Japan and to a lesser extent China insisting that their whole model can be based on a trading model where they run large actual current account surpluses. It just doesn't work. And so there's got to be a realignment of those imbalances around the world, which means you've got to have to have what people actually talk about but never do, which is international coordination of these policies to some degree. I mean, international coordination is talked about, but it's a bit like the Loch Ness Monster, more you know, talked about than seen. And the third element of this, which I think is absolutely crucial, is we need to change entitlement policies because the debt is part of the problem. We've also promised ourselves all these benefits down the track. And to some extent, the United States is ahead of the curve in doing this because using bankruptcy laws and so forth, they're rewriting a lot of the entitlements anyway. And that has to be done in other parts of the world. And that takes away the future problem to a large extent. And that means lengthening lives of people in terms of working. They're going to have to work for longer. They're going to have to accept that many of them will not be able to retire at whatever age they were promised. They may have to work for 10 or 15 years longer. And the last element of that is we have to definancialize the economy. And we have to really start to focus on the real economy and what we do in the real economy. And that means dragging back the financialization. Debt is part of that. But I don't think you can have a world in the future where, in effect, trading claims on real cash flows and real assets is actually more profitable and much more useful than actually creating the value in the first place, which goes back to my point about the types of innovation we really need to focus on. And that, I think, if you did all of those things and gradually did that, then I think the future would be much brighter. But fundamentally, there has to be also a political element to that. And the political element is, to be very honest, politicians and policymakers have lied. They've just lied to everybody and said, you know, it'll all be all right. We have the solutions. It's all fine. Because, you know, no politician ever got elected once they ceased to promise the electorate, you know, untold riches and inexhaustible plenty. They just don't win. There has to be an honest debate about what kind of society that they want and basically then how the pain of this adjustment is shared. The assumption that there will be no pain and this adjustment can be done very easily is not going to work. So you have to accept that this will require pain, but then there is a social issue about how you share the pain. And that's not only within countries. That's going to be across countries. So to go back to writing off debt, 
a lot of that write-off of debts will actually flow through into emerging markets through the actual savings that they've lent to the developed world. And that'll actually be one of the debates that you have to have. I've always argued, I've argued for five years, that basically the Chinese reserves of $4 billion is going to prove to be very illusory because they're never going to be able to realize it. And I think they've realized it now and are frantically trying to convert it into real assets as quickly as they can. So I think that's part of a solution. But to do that would require re-engineering a heck of a lot of the way we've approached the world. And that's the challenge we face. So I didn't think people often see me as being pessimistic. I don't think I'm pessimistic. I'm just actually itemizing the problems and saying, unless you face up to these problems, you're never going to deal with it. And I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said that if you seek truth, you might get comfort. But if you seek comfort, you're not going to get truth. You're certainly not going to get any comfort. All you're going to get is wishful thinking. And in the end, despair. All right. All very provocative. Shutujit Das, the book is Age of Stagnation. Uh, In Europe, it goes by the title Banquet of consequences. I got to say, I don't necessarily feel better about the rest of my day after having spoken to you, but uh, it's given me a lot to think about. Thanks for being here, Das. Thank you for having me. But before we let you go, Das, uh, what is your long form recommendation for our listeners? Well, it's kind of an odd one because I've been rereading Georges Louis Borges's short stories, and I've been particularly rereading all his writings about things like the Library of Babel, which contains all the knowledge in the world. And I would certainly recommend that people read it because they're the most provocative stories there are. And generally, finance is one of the most boring and economics is even more boring to read. So I think one of the strange things about the world is most people in this world of money get very narrowly focused and indulge in groupthink. So I prefer people to read outside of their normal areas of of, I suppose, expertise. And one of the greatest detective stories ever written, but actually was by Georges-Louis Borges called Death and the Compass, which combines Hebrew mythology with a murder mystery and a World War II spy story together with time travel. And it's certainly going to be more entertaining. And if we could do all of those things today, we could actually solve the problems of the world very neatly. So I think that's the type of thing that you need to read. And that is the end of the interview portion of today's show. But before we close it out, Shannon and I are going to give you our own long-form recommendations. Shannon, you first. So quickly, I'm going to recommend um, that everyone read that book that we discussed at the top, uh, Disrupted, My Misadventure in the Startup Bubble by Dan Lyons. It's just, it's a really good tale as well as everything else. And I won't spoil the ending, but the ending is pretty ridiculous. So read that, but also sort of on the lines of what we were talking about, these questions over career changes or uh, age discrimination, you know, this question of uh, fitting into the workforce when you're older. I want to recommend this really great New York Times piece from this week by Jeremy Peters about all the old men who've been hired by the presidential campaigns to like manage this crazy situation that looks like it's going to play out at the Republican convention um, where they have to do this sort of old-fashioned delegate wrangling. Basically, if if as seems likely, you know, Trump is going to be uh, fighting to actually win, you know, to secure the nomination, even if he has enough delegates because of the arcane way that we do our elections. Um, you actually need people who are sort of have this experience of essentially these floor fights, which we haven't had in decades. And so nobody knows how to do it. So nobody knows how to do it. So they basically they've brought on 
you know, people who were essentially, you know, on the convention floor in 1976 when Ronald Reagan and Gerald Ford were battling out the nominations. And it's just sort of a great, this kind of great counterpoint about anti-ageism actually in the workforce. Yeah, I love this idea that there's all these old timers who can come back and be like, yeah, you youngsters don't know anything from you know, from contested conventions. Right, right. Like they know like – but also they're kind of coming from a point – a time when they were like – you know, there weren't like cell phones and they were, they were they were doing all this stuff like, you know, with pieces of paper and with actual phones and, you know, like literally being on the floor. And, you know, today it's the, it's going to play out a bit differently. Um, but still that expertise and, and arm twisting will come in handy, I'm sure. There's a funny quote in that article from an 89-year-old saying – I'm just glad to still be here. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so the piece is called Potential GOP Convention Fight Puts Older Hands in Sudden Demand. We'll put a link on our show page. Sweet. What about you, Cardiff? I am going to recommend an article in The Economist's affiliated magazine called 1843, and the name of the article is Unfinishing School. It's ostensibly a review of a new exhibition at the Met Brewer uh, in Manhattan, but it's essentially uh, a look at the ways in which artists themselves tend not to finish their work. That's what the exhibition is about. Uh, and there's kind of a fun discussion about how the best excuse for not finishing a work is that you died in the middle of it. <laughs> but the second best, best excuse is you're a genius and you just can't let go of a piece of work because, of course, in your mind – this is going to be such a masterpiece. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be perfect, but nothing ever actually is in the real world. So you're looking at this thing, this idea or this art project, and you're seeing that the reality is a lot messier from this idealized image that you have in your head, and it makes it really hard to finish. And so, yes, it applies to all the great artists, but I think it also applies to a lot of our own projects for normal people, you know, large and small projects. If it's something you really care about, paradoxically, it makes it really hard to finish. Yep, absolutely. You know? There's a great quote in the article from W.H. Auden. A poem is never finished. It is only abandoned. <laughs> I think that applies to a lot of things we do, including Alpha Chat. But because we're on a deadline, damn it, we are going to continue releasing <laughs> Alpha Chats, even if they inevitably fall just short of what we hope each episode becomes. Our producer, Amy, just looked at us and said, that's such a sad thought. But it is sad. It's meant to be sad. It's meant to be mel melancholy. Nothing is ever as perfect as we want it to be. You and your platonic ideals. <laughs> exactly. Me well, and my platonic ideals. On that note, uh, we should say that if you want to let us know how the show could be better, how we could reach closer to that unattainable dream, <laughs> um, you can give us a call at 917-551-5012. You can also send us an email to alphachat at ft.com. We're on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Pry, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L, and Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. We'd also love it if you would leave us a review and rate the show on iTunes. And we put up notes about our guests and links to our recommendations at ft.com slash alphachat. Shannon, you know who is a platonic ideal? <laughs> I can't guess, Cardiff. <laughs> Our producer and editor, Amy Keene. It's just unfortunate that Amy has uh, such flawed clay to work with, right? <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> yes, I am speaking for myself, okay? Shannon's perfect. Amy Keene is perfect. All mistakes are 100% mine. 
Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. A special announcement before we close you out. Next week, Shannon and I are off, but we do have something special lined up. U.S. Markets Editor Robin Wigglesworth is going to take you on a journey around the fascinating world of sovereign debt, answering questions like how do countries become insolvent? How do they attempt to restructure their debts? He's going to cover all that and more in quick, short daily episodes starting on Tuesday and going through Friday. So definitely tune in for that. Keep downloading Alpha Chat, something different next week. And in two weeks, Shannon and I will be back for our regularly scheduled episode. But I'm not done yet because there's more. Our sister long-form podcast, Alpha Chatterbox, will be featuring a discussion between my Alphaville colleague, Matt Klein, and short-selling hedge fund manager, Jim Chanos. This was a really fascinating discussion. You're not going to want to miss it. So please download Alpha Chatterbox on Monday. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.